When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. This week, our critics review Pixar's new animated movie, Onward. Ben Affleck stars as an alcoholic basketball coach in The Way Back. Critics' favorite, writer-director Kelly Reichardt's new film is the Oregon set, First Cow. We've also got a horror movie that's actually screened for critics. First-time writer-director Carlo Mirabella Davis's Swallow. By the way, we're listening to the great film composer Alfred Newman's theme from 1962's How the West Was Won. It's Film Week coming your way right after the news here on 89.3 KPCC. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy.co, that's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash Filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a great start. And our critics this week to take us through all the week's movies are Charles Solomon, animation critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the Breakfast All Day podcast, and Amy Nicholson, who writes on film for The Guardian and hosts the podcast Unspooled and the miniseries Zoom. Uh, we begin with Pixar's latest film, Onward, directed by Dan Scanlon. Uh, this film uh, features elf brothers setting out on a quest to discover whether magic still exists in the world. In this scene, they find a mythical beast, the Manticore, but discover she's not quite what they thought. Oh, great and powerful Manticore. Whoa, sir, you're right in the hot zone. You're late, Adolphus. I understand there's traffic. You need to plan for that. Well, maybe your mother should get her own car. Your fearlessness? My brother and I seek a map to a phoenix gem. Oh, uh, well, you've come to the right tavern. I have the parchment you desire right here. Oh, that's a children's menu. Octavia Spencer, the voice in Onward, also featuring the voices of Chris Pratt and Tom Holland. The film's co-written by the director Dan Scanlon with Jason Headley and Keith Bunin. Charles, what do you think of Onward? Well, this is minor Pixar at best, I'm afraid. Um, uh, You have two elf brothers in a world where the elves have given up magic for technology. They've kind of become muggles. Uh, Ian is skinny, nervous, nerdy. His brother, Barley, is this kind of big doofus who 
thinks about the magic of the past and games. And on Ian's birthday, they get a magic wand that can bring their father back from the dead for 24 hours so he can find out how his sons turned out. But the spell doesn't quite work. They only resurrect him uh, up to his belt buckle. And then they go off on a quest to try and find the magic gem needed to uh, bring the rest of him back for the, and with this 24-hour time lock. So it turns into a road movie, a brother's bonding movie, though I didn't get much sense of urgency from it. But I think the film has three big problems. The first is it is very derivative. The ending and the beginning are so close to How to Train Your Dragon movies, Dean Deblois should have a story credit on the film. Second, Ian, who is supposedly our hero and at the center of the film, is this complete non-entity. He has no interests, no passions, no hobbies. no uh, He just reacts. Whenever something happens around him, he jumps and he starts and he's nervous and he's nerdy. And you contrast him to somebody like Kenji in Hosoda's Summer Wars, who is a math nerd, but who knows he's good at math and who uses his skills as a lightning calculator to help save the day in the big crisis at the end. But its biggest problem for me is that it is just a nonstop talkathon. And when you think of the great magical moments in Pixar movies, the, the married life montage in Up, Remy learning to use Linguini as a puppet in Ratatouille, uh, Ava courting, uh, Wally calling, courting Ava, uh, Jesse's song, they take place with little or no dialogue, and the animation, the character's acting, wins the audience's heart and tells you everything you need to know that's going on. And there's very little of that in this film, and it's like they kind of turned their back on their art form, and the animation is just supporting talk and talk and more talk. Onward is Disney Pixar's new film. Christy, what'd you think? Yeah, what's unfortunate about this as well is it's an incredibly personal story. It's inspired by Dan Scanlon's own childhood. He was one year old when his father died. His older brother was only a few years older, so he has some hazy memories, but not really many at all. So this story comes from a really deep and intimate and personal place. But the result feels really rushed and frantic and it's this series of fetch quests, breathlessly so. Like, you got to go to this place to get this thing and then go to this place to get the map to then go to get this thing. As Charles says, they're talking nonstop. A lot of that is Chris Pratt talking as the the boisterous older brother. I kind of like the idea, though, of Spider-Man and Star-Lord being brothers and going off on a quest together with Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. And they have some nice chemistry with each other. Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays their mom, and she gets very little to do. We heard Octavia Spencer are there in the clip and that's kind of a fun character you know that she was this once fearsome mythological manticore who now is the manager at this family friendly tavern with a salad bar and a claw machine yeah there's some cute ideas And, and what the suburbia now looks like it looks like Burbank, actually, but it has some elements of like the houses are these kind of bulbous mushrooms. And there's some cool stuff here and there in the little itty bitty details. But as a whole, the story is not nearly as transporting 
A, as it aims to be, or B, as any other Pixar movie, really. I mean, it should be tugging at your heart. The idea of being able to see your father, to see a dead parent again after all this time, it's just, it should really, really get to you. And it just didn't, it didn't for me, at least. But yeah. did you coin the term fetch quest? Is that yours? That's a great term. I've never heard of it. It's a video game thing. You got a video game, you got to go to get the thing to get the next thing. They're called fetch quests. Got it. Okay. I was ready to give you credit. Onward is the film. Rated PG from Disney Pixar, Dan Scanlon, the director. It's in wide release. Also in wide release this week is the drama The Way Back. Stars Ben Affleck as a former high school basketball phenom struggling with alcoholism who gets offered a coaching job at his alma mater. You're Marcus, right? That's right. You're the tallest player on the team. Oh. Makes me wonder why you're putting three-pointers up every time you come down the court. Ask Coach Dan. I made the most threes on the team last year. Coach Dan, how many threes did Marcus make last year? Made 34. Out of how many attempts? Out of 130. 26%, Marcus. You want to know why they're leaving you open? It's because they don't think you could hit the ocean from the beach. The Way Back, directed by Gavin O'Connor, who co-wrote the screenplay with Brad Inglesby. Christy? This is really surprisingly solid and not at all mawkish or maudlin as it might look from the outset. Um, this is probably the best work of Ben Affleck's career. And a, a lot of that comes from the fact that it's so personal for him. So clearly his own struggles with alcoholism off screen are well documented. He's spoken very frankly about that. But you get the sense in watching it, that he really imbues the performance with that personal experience. He knows this struggle, and so it's a redemption story on a multitude of levels. And it's really not even a sports movie. I mean, it takes place within, you know, a a high school basketball team. It's got some of the structural familiarity that you might see. You know, they're kind of a ragtag team. They're not very good. They barely have enough kids to even put together a varsity team. Um, He is this struggling and um, separated construction worker who's clearly a very serious alcoholic. He's, you know, getting into his pickup truck at the at the end of the day and popping open a beer and putting it in his coffee mug to drive home and then going straight to the bar. And he he's a mess. Um, but ask, getting this job, having the, the priest at his alma mater ask him to come and be the basketball coach gives him some structure that he really doesn't think he needs but he does quite clearly quite clearly and the team you know they're terrible at first and then they start winning and they keep winning and then they end up having to play the team that beat them at the beginning of the movie and so it's got some familiarity but there's a richness to this story and there's a rawness to it and and an emotional realism that makes it really solid and surprisingly moving um it was shot and set in san pedro so it's got and you feel it you you have a sense of san pedro you do, and it's a place that we don't see a lot of movies get shot. But no. you, you see the, the port in the background, and, and the beach there is a very despite it being part. a very photogenic district. Yeah, and so so that that is is quite gripping as well. It's really good, and uh, I really hope folks see it because I think it can do some folks a lot of good who are maybe struggling in their own ways. The way back, the drama starring Ben Affleck, Gavin O'Connor directs, rated R, in wide release. One of my favorite directors is Kelly Reichardt, and her new film, which she co-wrote with Jonathan Raymond, is First Cow, starring John Magaro and Orion Lee. Amy? Oh, I'm glad to hear that she's one of your favorite yeah, directors. Yeah, Old Joy and uh, Wendy and Lucy. Yeah, terrific director. Exactly. I think that Kelly Reichardt has such a valuable lane in film because she's this filmmaker who I think is always making these 
films that are kind of questioning and reframing the American story and the story we tell ourselves. Because I think when we talk about American history and film, it's usually cowboys and deputies and the Wild West. And she makes these stories that take away all the kind of action and violence and focus on the real people, like the gentler, softer version of the people who settled America. And, and she's really probing at questions about the American identity. And she does that so well in First Cow. First Cow is my favorite of her films now. So I wow. can't wait for you to see it. Okay. Yeah, I'm it. really looking. She gives such a sense of place in the movies of hers. I've seen. Absolutely. And the place here is Oregon. And we see it first in the modern setting of Oregon, giant barges down the street. The trees have been stripped away from this river. And you have Olia Shawcat quietly walking through this area and coming across a, a grave that um, has been just discovered. She discovers it when her dog smells the skull and digs it up. And then from there, Kelly Reichardt jumps back to the people who lived in this area when it was first being settled when it was real raw, you know, the period of mud and somebody gets new boots and everybody in the village is like, oh, he has new boots. What's happening? In this moment, right when Oregon becomes domesticated and domestication literally happens in the form of this first cow her name is eve she's a real cow and you see her glide into the film on this barge with like sunbeams hitting her face <laughs> and this cow changes the town but it specifically changes the life of our two heroes in here um one of them is an indentured baker who's now free and he's made his way west as a cookie cooking for people trying to find food and the other one is a chinese immigrant who's a great salesman and they team up to start basically like a hipster cronut business. I don't know, even know how else you could describe it. A but startup. Bringing, <laughs> a startup, bringing really good baked goods to this area that involve the cow in ways that wind up getting them in trouble. I just thought their friendship in this movie was so moving. And 200 years later, we now have artisanal baked goods, right? <laughs> this is where they began. These were real. They have amazing chemistry. And, and this does have some echoes of old joy. In that you have it's a it's a buddy kind of quiet buddy comedy drama in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, they have lovely chemistry, and I also love the way that John Magaro talks to the cow. Oh, he lo he, he loves that he, cow. He has an interaction with her. I, we don't want to spoil what all happens here, but um, it's it's so many different kinds of movie at once. It's got this incredibly rich sense of place. But yeah, it's it's economic echoes are so relevant today that you have a couple of guys with a dream. And they just want to make a little bit of money and start a new life somewhere. Like, they don't want to take over the world. They want to just sell some big goods and maybe, like, open a hotel in San Francisco. And so it's a buddy comedy, but maybe more. Maybe there's a deeper, more intimate connection there. But there's, there's sort of a, a, a pleasing kind of ambiguity to their relationship and to everything that goes on here. Toby a true Jones, domestic partnership. Yes, truly. And, and, um, and Toby Jones is pretty great as just this condescending wealthy jerk landowner who owns the cow there's a cat that's quite important in the movie yeah I, this might end up being one of my favorite movies of the year i was gonna say you're describing what be a strong contender for an independent spirit award it's very much in that part yes in that world if i mean oscars unfortunately don't pay a lot of attention to smaller films generally like this but but that's where the spirit awards come in of course first cow charles what do you think well i'm afraid i'm odd man out here and amy you know much more about this than i do would this be considered mumblecore no because no, i could not no, make out no, much of the dialogue no. <laughs> and a lot of it is mumble under cow? Mumble cow. Oh, there we i'm go. sorry justin's yes. not here it's a fetch quest for a uh, mumble cow <laughs> A lot of it is also underlit, and I felt like I was just stumbling around in the dark. I liked the characters. They didn't the have electricity back I know then. they didn't have electricity, but somehow the um, Chinese character had managed to build a cabin that would rent for, you know, $7,000 a month if it were in L.A. now, even and has a hammock and so forth. But we also jumped from seeing him naked 
for some reason, he's taken off his clothes while he was fleeing bad guys. The baker hides him in his travoy. Nobody seems to notice how much heavier that's gotten. Then he goes off, and suddenly, 20 minutes later, he's dressed and doing very well in this frontier town, and there were just gaps I I didn't follow. Plus, um, as someone who bakes, I had some questions about some other parts of it, but it, it, it just didn't win me over. And, Recipe authenticity yes. was lacking. <laughs> All right. The movie from director Kelly Reichardt, uh, also co-screenwriter with Jonathan Raymond, is First Cow, based on the novel uh, by Jonathan Raymond. It's rated PG-13. It's on screen at the Arclight Hollywood and the Landmark in West L.A. And uh, coming up, we're going to hear what our critics have to say about the horror film Swallow, starring Haley Bennett. We'll also hear about the comedic drama St. Francis, starring Kelly O'Sullivan and Max Lipschitz, and The Banker, starring Anthony Mackie and Samuel L. Jackson. Those are just a few of the movies that are coming your way on Film Week. Here on 89.3 KPECC, Larry Mantle with Christy, Charles, and Amy, and they'll be giving their take on many more of these films. Also, a little bit later, we'll talk about the best literary adaptations of films. We've had some good ones lately. We'll find out what our critics think are their favorites. That's to come on Film Week on KPCC. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. So glad to have you with us. Amy Nicholson, Christy Lemire, Charles Solomon are with me reviewing this week's films. Next up, the horror movie Swallow, starring Haley Bennett and Austin Stoll. Carlo Mirabella Davis is the writer-director of the film. Christy, what'd you think? I really love this movie, and I love the mastery of tone, and I love the really specific color palette at play here. It stars Haley Bennett as a young wife living a seemingly luxurious life in this incredible house that is all modern and glass with these tremendous views of the Hudson River. Her husband, played by Austin Stoll, is gorgeous and, you know, very good at what he does, makes a lot of money, also comes from a lot of money. They seem to be happy. She would seem to have everything, but she is sad and she is isolated and she is bored. And increasingly, she turns to Pika to putting random items in her mouth and swallowing them to nourish herself in a way that the outward trappings of her life are not doing for her. And um, as she gets pregnant, this becomes increasingly a problem. And as she puts sharper and more dangerous items in her mouth to swallow, it gets scarier and scarier. And there is such a restrained way that this film depicts her whole thought process because we'll see what she sees if it's like a marble or like a jack like you're playing jacks or something even sharper we'll see it and then she'll she'll kind of marvel at it in her pretty pink fingertips and she'll look at it and then she'll swallow it and then eventually it comes out and she has this meticulous tray of everything she has swallowed and passed through her body this is why I think it's described as a horror movie yeah I was gonna say (laughs) This this fits. It's yeah, this sounds horrific. worse than gore. It's not horrific though. It's all handled in this 
kind of lovely and sad and detached way that you really feel for her in her isolation and nothing's going to make her happy and she's just trapped. Yeah, it's much more fable-esque than it is Saw. I was, yeah. nervous. I was very nervous about watching this yeah. before that yeah, reason. Yeah, I'm nervous hearing about it. <laughs> so am I. But it's really lovely. And I have to say, I'm so happy to see the lead actress, Haley Bennett, back. You know, she had this tiny debut a couple of years ago. She popped up. She was in, I think, The Girl on the Train, that little, that sort of mm-hmm. very slight thriller. She was in Hardcore Henry, a movie that nobody saw, which is fine. They didn't have to. Mm-hmm. And then she disappeared for a couple of years, and she is now back in this film. Like, when I... She was a person I had this big asterisk by, like, you are interesting. And so to have a whole film with Haley Bennett at the center, I think, is amazing. She has so much promise as an actress. Yeah, I think this film, you know, it does have that kind of pastel, colorful perfection that I can imagine some people could find smothering. But there's a lot of life in Haley herself, and I think it keeps this film really alive. And what I, I found this film absolutely likable i think the ending it's a little bit neat you know they try to tie it together there's it's too tidy in a way that i think the film is always kind of pushing against and playing with this idea of perfect domestication but i did appreciate that swallow in the middle of this because i can imagine people are hearing this description like unhappy beautiful rich girl oh no poor thing poor thing poor thing and the only way she can express herself is through this kind of physical thing like i'm at least doing something nobody else can understand but in the midst of this you have this character show up who is um hired to guard her and keep her from hurting herself. And he's a Syrian refugee. And he basically looks at her case and he's like, I have survived a war. All of your problems are basically nothing. (laughs) And I appreciate that little entrance of reality check that the film seems to be aware that it wants to insert. It's also a scene toward the end with Dennis O'Hare, which is chilling. And it changes your perspective on everything that you have seen. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) And this is a directing debut by writer-director Carlo Mirabella Davis. Swallow is the film Haley Bennett, Austin Stoll star. It's rated R, and you can see it in Santa Monica at Lemley's Monica Film Center. St. Francis, a comedic drama directed by Alex Thompson. Kelly O'Sullivan wrote it and stars in it with Mac Lipschitz. Christy, what do you think of St. Francis? I liked it a lot, and I liked its ability to tackle potentially tricky and weighty subjects with really refreshing honesty and, and a matter-of-fact nature. Um, Kelly O'Sullivan, who wrote the script, also stars in it. She's this woman in her mid-30s who is kind of stuck like all her friends are getting married and having babies and you know their lives seem set and the the way society expects you to be and she's not checking any of those boxes and she's not sure she ever actually wants to she's a waitress and then she gets a job as a nanny for this little girl who is the daughter of a lesbian couple um one of the wives is pregnant with their second child and they need a little bit of help around the house and so um so the Kay, Kelly O'Sullivan's character, who doesn't even like kids, doesn't really know a whole lot about kids, takes this job. But the little girl, Frances, is wise beyond her years and ends up becoming the friend that she never realized she needed. All of that sounds super twee and quirky and cliched. It is not. Because along the way, as um, our character is, is caring for Frances, she gets pregnant herself. And she has an abortion. And the movie, this is not a spoiler, this happens very early on, but the movie handles in a very matter-of-fact and very non-judgmental way the way that she balances what she decides to do with her own body with her increasing involvement with this family. And it's really lovely and really smart and thoughtful, and it takes turns that are unexpected. It gets a little preachy and a little pat toward the end, but I found it 
really refreshing in its honesty. St. Francis, the film starring Kelly O'Sullivan, who wrote it, Alex Thompson, first feature film for Alex. The film is unrated. It's at the Arclight in Hollywood. The Banker stars Anthony Mackie and Samuel L. Jackson. George Nolfi is the director and one of the screenwriters, along with Nisole Levy and Stan Younger. Uh, Amy, what would you think of The Banker? Yeah, The Banker is the true-ish story of a man named Bernard Garrett, who was a young kid growing up in segregated small-town Texas. He was black. He was a shoeshine boy. He grows up here to be played by Anthony Mackie. And he's incredibly bright, incredibly ambitious. And you see him at the start of the film use his position as a, a shoe. A shoe shine boy outside of a very small Texas bank to eavesdrop on the businessmen's conversations and when he knows that they don't hear him and learn about how banks work, how stocks work, how financing works, how negotiation works and percentages. And he grows up and moves to L.A. in the 50s when L.A. is still segregated and he decides, I'm going to be a real estate baron. I'm going to make my living here. And people are like, you can't do that. And the only way he manages to do it is by partnering with somebody with a white face who's able to be the face of the company as he is the brains of the company. And so... This is the story of him building an empire and then losing an empire. And one of his partners in here is played by Samuel Jackson, who's more of like a boozer nightclub owner that he's worried to be in partnership. It's very much a Samuel L. Jackson performance. And then also Nicholas Holt as like a younger, uneducated white kid with also a ton of ambition who they train in golf and manners and kind of use him as the face of this company. The scenes at the beginning of this film that are set in L.A., like all of the stuff that's about this segregated real estate market as it was in the 50s and how these men tried to break through it in whatever they can, that part is really strong. And in the second half, it expands more into the banking industry at large and it gets – I was pretending like I could follow the math of real estate. I was really <laughs> losing it in the banking section. And it just gets a little weighed down. You know, this is the kind of Mackie performance that I don't always love where he's so worried about being taken seriously that I think he performs it too seriously. And there's not the life of, of Mackie that I think he's really capable of bringing. But um, I admire so much of the early part of the film. And especially when you see them buy, you know, the building here, the what used to be known as the Bankers Building and is now called the Los Angeles Jewelry Center. And how they buy this white banking building. So is this based on a real story? It is based on okay. a real story. Oh, yeah. It is based on a real story. Joe Morris is the Samuel Jackson character. He's a real person. And Bernard Garrett is a real person. And the film is actually delayed because a lot of the relatives of Bernard Garrett had issues with being written out of the movie. Yeah, it's a big building, that, uh, yeah. that jewelry. Yeah, they thing. managed to buy that and surprise people when they revealed that they were the owners. Wow. What do you think, Christy? Yeah, it's a fascinating story, a piece of, of our history here in L.A. that I'm sure most folks don't know. But it is depicted in the most safe, bland, just meh, like biopic form. It's really, it's a lot of montages, especially when Anthony Mackie and Samuel L. Jackson are training Nicholas Holt, who's just like a simple guy, not the smartest guy. And they're teaching him like how to dress and which fork to use and how to play golf. And it's all these like wacky montages, way too many of them. And it just, it's a really formulaic telling of a story about people who took chances. Like this movie itself does not take a whole lot of chances in terms of structure, in terms of tone. And then increasingly it becomes about Nicholas Holt's character and how he gets a little greedy and gets a little ahead of himself and thinks he's smarter than he actually is and wants to make some of his own deals and what repercussions and consequences that has. And then it becomes about him and not the more interesting groundbreaking people here. So, um, 
yeah, sort of a missed opportunity to tell a fascinating story yeah. well. I appreciate the questions at least it raises, though, about like what do we owe the people that we want to rise up behind us and like what is money for? I'm glad that's in this film, but I do feel like you're right. There could be a much more interesting and ambitious film made out of this story. The Banker is in selected theaters. It's rated PG-13. Escape from Pretoria stars Daniel Radcliffe and Daniel Weber, Francis Anon, the director and co-screenwriter. Amy? This is also based on a true story. It's the, t- it's the story of two young men growing up in apartheid South Africa, both middle class, both kids of educated families. They're played by, um, they're played, uh, by Daniel Radcliffe and Daniel Weber. And they start kind of, you see them in the film um, creating what I guess you would call leaflet bombs. You know, they would place bombs in populated areas that were sort of help encouraging people to rise up and start a revolution and try well, to break were, down they apartheid. They were working for the ANC. They were working for the ANC. And they get arrested in the opening scenes. And this is, from then on, a prison escape movie of these two guys figuring out how to get out of here by building handmade wooden keys, by the step-by-step, really torturous, MacGyverish, quiet, unnerving, and long process that ends up taking the entire rest of the film. Like, if you ever wanted to learn how to make a wooden key, this is definitely the film for how to make a wooden key. Um, I liked this film. I did like this film a bit. Like, it's it's... It is more just linear in terms of how are they going to do it than about really anything else in the expanded worldview. But it is a good performance for Daniel Radcliffe, I feel like, especially. Like, I I admire that he's using his Harry Potter money to try to bring to life stories like this with this John Lennon hair and these glasses that he has in this film. And I don't know. I was very tense through a lot of it. It's amazing what you can do with chewing gum to break out of a prison. (laughs) (laughs) Charles, what do you think? um, I agree with Amy about admiring Radcliffe for this work because I've known people who were like the voices of a cartoon character when they were a kid. And when you peak before you're 17, it can really create a disaster of a life for you. I think the problem with this film, as Amy said, is just this endless thing about making keys They really don't set up the characters. We don't know why these two middle-class people have taken up the ANC as a cause and what radicalized them, what brought them to this quest for justice uh, that they're willing to go to prison and risk their lives to do. And I wanted to know more about those characters and less about whittling keys. I also wondered, and I think it should have been set up, that Radcliffe's character must have had some experience with this because I couldn't put a pencil in a lock and figure out how to make a key from it. You know, he, he's taken a locksmith course somewhere, and I don't think they let you do that by correspondence in a prison. Um, again, if there had been more about the characters and less about just trying to get this to turn and, and just trying to reach this with a broom, I think it would have been a more effective film. Escape from Pretoria is at the vintage Los Feliz Theater. It's rated PG-13. Run This Town, a Canadian-U.S. production. Ricky Tolman, the writer-director, Ben Platt, and Mena Masood star in the film. Amy? Yeah, this is a proto-Sorkin, very young, very millennial, very kind of fresh take on the modern story. They heard about Rob Ford, the mayor in Canada who was caught smoking crack on camera. This is the story of the young people in his orbit who either were conspiring to bring him down or protect their reputation because he was their boss. It's a lot of fast talking. Everybody here is talking very, 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 very fast. Everyone's fast. Everyone's witty. Everyone's sharp. Everyone's like, ah, the smartest kid in the room. And it feels like a lot of kids at adult desks yelling and screaming. And yet, like, you know, there is a lot in here that I think is about what it is like to be a young millennial and how to figure out how to grow up in the world and 
make your own path in the different markets that are open to them, like either as a political assistant to a mayor that you don't really believe in or trying to build your way up in the journalism industry as it's dying. And there, it's, you get this sense really of a generation of the brightest kids in their class trying to figure out how to get the older people out of their way and make something of their lives and trying to defend the millennial reputation. I mean, this starts as a, as a kind of smart Sorkin-y political film and then turns into this up with millennials film at the very end that I was kind of surprised by. It took that turn, but I did buy the freshness and the youth in this world of industries dying. Yes, and there's a, a distracting amount of split screens, as if the walking and talking weren't all fast enough. We have split screens to watch many things happening simultaneously. Damien Lewis plays Rob Ford, and he is under all this prosthetics and all this makeup that is so bad, so rubbery, so distracting. He looks like Gwyneth Paltrow in Shallow Hell. <laughs> I never for a second forgot that I was watching an actor under piles of makeup. Yeah, it is very Aaron sorkin light. J.C. Chandor produced this, who also did Margin Call. This is a very, very lesser version of that kind of great walking and talking film. Run This Town is rated R. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. We have more films to talk about as we continue on Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Joined by Christy Lemire, Charles Solomon, and Amy Nicholson. Reviewing this week's movies, next of which is Hope Gap. Starring Annette Bening and Bill Nye. William Nicholson, the writer-director of the romantic drama. Christy? on a play that William Nicholson ran, wrote rather, sorry. Um, and it feels like a play on film quite a bit in good and bad ways. So Annette Bening and Bill Nye play this longtime married couple living in this quaint seaside town of Seaford in England. And um, they're opposites so clearly. It's it's so literal so clunkily literal how different they are. He's a high school history teacher who is very quiet and reserved and likes to wear monochromatic sweaters and button downs. And she's into poetry. She wears really flowy paisleys and floral prints. And they have desks that are literally facing away from each other. Opposite, their backs are always turned. And hers is messy and his is neat. And they're so obviously mismatched. But they're about to celebrate their 29th wedding anniversary And Bill Nye uses the opportunity to tell her that he is leaving her. And he invites their 20-something son up, played by Josh O'Connor, to come up from to come down rather from London to visit to serve as a buffer as he breaks the news. And it is how they all cope with the destruction of this marriage. And it's a lot of the same kind of conversations over and over again. Walking and talking along the seaside, the imposing scenic white cliffs are lovely and foreboding at once. Annette Benning is doing a very ill-advised British accent here. And it's really, it's really off and distractingly so. Um, yeah, you never really know who these characters were in a deep way beyond the superficial differences, you know, prior to this rift in their marriage. And so when it all collapses, there isn't the great emotional weight that perhaps the film is aiming for. 
Yeah, I kept thinking, you know, this is marriage story if they didn't divorce when the kid was young, if they waited till he was older <laughs> and then he had to deal with the fallout of it. I mean, it felt very squishy to me. It didn't it felt like earnest to the person who made it, but not very earnest to me watching the film. You you have I I really admire Annette Bedding in most of her work. And in this film, you're right, it's just sort of there and loud and depressive and suicidal and kind of taking up a lot of energy and space, but there's not much there there really beyond it. You know, it feels like this is a story relevant to a person who's been through this experience. And yet it felt like for ever, for all of the talking people were doing about themselves, you're right, there wasn't that much of themselves there that we actually were invested in or caring about. You know, one of the more interesting vague through lines in here is that their son, their grown son, is where he has inherited his dad's tendency to be cold and distant and that he's clearly having some sort of problem in his love life. And yet as much as they refer to it, then film never seems to care about it. And I feel like that was the thing with the whole entire film. It was like elbowing you to think about the things that it's not actually getting into. Right. And he's our conduit into all this. And he is such a drip. Like, he's so boring. <laughs> like, who cares? Um, there's one really solid scene. The scene where Bill Nye tells her he's going to leave her. And there's a great rat-a-tat kind of give and take. And all she can do is repeat back to him what he's just said to her in complete wide-eyed disbelief and then she gets all sunny and perky and she's going to will it to be okay. Like That's where it feels like a play in the most alive and immediate ways, but that is unusual. The film is Hope Gap. Annette Bening, Bill Nye, star William Nicholson, wrote and directed, rated PG-13 at the Landmark in West L.A. The latest film from the Belgian Dardenne brothers, Jean-Pierre and Luke, is Young Ahmed, the film unrated. Christy? So this is a, a film which not unlike St. Francis, is about a very complicated, very emotional, weighty, and relevant topic and is handled in the most austere, understated way, as is the Dardenne's Dardenne's usual style. And, and And I appreciate that because it allows us to have the time and the space to just consider this young man and his choices and why he's doing what he's doing. Charles and I were talking earlier about how in Onward it's just incessant talking this is the opposite of that. <laughs> We've got a lot of room to, to, to really think and to really interpret who this young man is and why he makes these choices. So Ahmed is, he's like 13 years old, 13, 14 years old, and he has been going to this mosque where this increasingly influential imam is is encouraging in him a, a very austere interpretation of the Quran to the extent that he hatches this idea in his head that he needs to kill his teacher, his after-school tutor who has been helping him. Um, And you see the quiet ways that he goes about that. You see him writing out his farewell note with plans to, you know, do what he has to do and damn the consequences. And and it's, um, it's, you know, it follows him from behind, those long tracking shots that the Dardens like. And so there's you know, it's quite fraught as he's doing seemingly mundane things, walking down the street, walking down a hallway. The camera's always with him. You never know what's going to happen. Um, but we don't know anything really about what this young man was like before. And I feel like to truly feel the the power of that evolution, of, of the ideological shift that has gone on within him, we needed to know a little bit about who he was And what prior. his home was like. Right. And, and, uh, and we don't really. I mean, he, he comes from a Muslim household, but he is, um, you know, his mom is not as as devout as he he thinks she should be. And so he's quite judgmental of her and, and feels disenfranchised from her. Um, it's 
it's a tricky thing, but I admire that they are trying to get at something complicated in, in, a, in a simple, clear-eyed way. Which they always try to do. Whether yes. it works or not, yes. you always have to give them credit for the ambition I love of their the films. Yes. Yeah, Young Ahmed from the Dardenne Brothers. It's unrated at Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. The thriller The Burnt Orange Heresy stars Elizabeth Debicki and Clayce Bang. Giuseppe Capatandi is the director of the film. Amy? Yeah, I was excited to see this given the great debut to us performance that we got to see from Elizabeth Debicki in Widows where she shows up and you're suddenly like, who is that I don't know, seven foot tall actress who is fascinating. She's like six foot two. Wow. Yeah. I love her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was very excited to see this. Um, this is a film that is um, another entrant in the canon of critics are the worst people on earth. You know, that whole genre of film <laughs> yeah. that seems to exist. The awful critic here. Um, They're not film critics, though, here. <laughs> <laughs> not here. Not here off the hook. They're just art critics. And the art critic in question is played by a man named Clay Bang. He's um, very hot shot. You see him in the beginning kind of talking his way through a lecture of how he's going to pull the wool over the eyes of several art fans and make sure that he, everybody knows that he's the smartest person in the room. And he's on a quest here, hired by a rich patron um, played by Mick Jagger, who is, I think, fairly good in the film, mm. to um, befriend Donald <laughs> Sutherland, who's like this kind of goofball nihilist painter uh, named Jerome Debney, who's been hiding out in his Italian villa in a back cabin, painting masterpieces that he won't let anybody see. And so the critic's job is to interview him, befriend him, and get one of these paintings to give it to Jagger. And he brings along Tabiki, a woman that he just picks up in a one-night stand along on this extended weekend in an Italian villa. It's one of those places where everywhere you look, there's giant bowls of fruit everywhere (laughs) that nobody's eating. Just a full-time person to stock the fruit bowl. Do we have enough grapes in that bowl? Do we have 30 apples that clearly no one's interested in? Um, I mean, this film... You know, for as much as I was excited to get to see a great Debiki performance, it's really not there. I thought that this film is very arch and educated and everyone's talking so heavily and there's not much life underneath it. You know, it's very heavily and portentous. And then it gets very cruel. And I was disappointed, ultimately. You know, when, it, when the film decides it wants to become more of a thriller and it starts twisting the knife, I felt numb. Yeah, what do you think, Amy? I'm Christy. Okay, Hello. It's okay. It happens all the time. It, it happens all the time to us. Um, so I really liked it for a while because the two of them have such sexy, crazy chemistry. And they're Very both true. so great looking. I mean, this could be a Hitchcockian thriller for a long time just with the two of them. And I mean, Elizabeth Debicki is like classic Hitchcockian, sexy, cool blonde. Um, and the settings, of course, as you mentioned, are so luxurious. It all seems so impossible. And I really like Donald Sutherland as he's got like this twinkle in his eye. Like he's seen it all and he's still got secrets to tell. And 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 I liked it for a while. And then it's like a switch gets flipped and it all kind of begins happening in, in like a sped up fast forward motion in terms of the scheme, in terms of the psychological damage that occurs, the physical and psychological damage, it all gets kind of nutty. Um, and I did not believe Mick Jagger for a second. You didn't? I was so distracted by it. I never forgot that I was watching Mick <laughs> Just Jagger. Just Mick Jagger on screen. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. I appreciate it. All right, it's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle with, with Charles. <laughs> all right, we're going to continue our next uh, segment looking at adaptations that have been done multiple times What sort of updating works and which ones fall flat? It's Film Week on 89.3. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with Christy Lemire, Amy Nicholson, and Charles Solomon. 
The Frame comes your way every Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock. The Frame weekend, brand new program, John Horn hosting with highlights of the week's biggest stories in arts and entertainment. This week, Saturday at 2, director Steve Coogan talks about his new satire, Greed, and lifelong fan of the band Kiss says goodbye to the band that helped him come out of the closet. It's The Frame weekend every Saturday at 2 here on 89.3 KPECC. Well, we've had a spate of films that have been out over the past uh, six months or so that are multiple versions of of films. Emma, one of the most recent ones, the Jane Austen classic uh, that was uh, remade by Autumn DeWilde. We've also, of course, had Little Women and other films like that. So when you're going to be remaking a film, that has already had some pretty great versions to it. What has to happen to make it a worthwhile endeavor to do it yet again? And how do you make it newly relevant uh, with with an additional uh, version of the film? Uh, Amy, let me start with you. you What do you think, what are the films that have most successfully done this? Well, you know, I think the question that the filmmaker has to ask themselves is why am I doing this today? What do I have to bring out? And, you know, in a film like Emma, which I think is a great example, you know, you feel that Autumn DeWilde was like, here's a story about a privileged woman. What do I want to bring out in this? I want to really hammer down on the class differences. I want to hammer down on the use of servants in this world in a way that, you know, didn't happen so much in the Gwyneth Paltrow version. And so I think when you figure out what in that adaptation is relevant to today, then you make it feel alive. I think you can tell as an audience member when a film is just being made because it's an easy title. People will go see it. Cough, cough, everything Disney has been doing. But <laughs> but you can, at sense, I mean, to me, this becomes kind of personal because I think like one of the genres that is most known for remaking and remaking and remaking things is, of course, the horror genre, you know, where you have people like, I find John Carpenter being the master of how do you take a property that exists and then figure out what's the new heart in it that people didn't see the first time. You know, so it feels like, your when he does something like the fly, for example, you sense John Carpenter being like, "Here's a really interesting idea. Like, what if you're a man whose head gets attached to a, a fly's body?" Because that wasn't David Cronenberg. Oh, Cronenberg. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh, I was thinking of the thing, and I said, "Yeah, yeah." yeah I was, the I was, thing though is a great example. The thing is also a great example. I'm, yeah, I was thinking absolutely of the thing, um, but also the fly. I was thinking of both of them together because they are both great examples. Yeah, and but, Cronenberg goes with the, his version of the fly is so much more uh, visceral. Exactly. He really goes to kind of the real heartbreak of that story and found something so beautiful and so new in it. And I think that's why when he does it or when, say, John Carpenter remakes the thing, you know, you really sense why that story is fresh again and vital. It's the vitality I feel like people are looking for. Yeah. Charles, what what do you think? Well, one exa- an example that comes to mind for me is Beauty and the Beast, that there have probably been 30 different films of, but we really only remember, too, the Cocteau. That really is a dream on the screen and is so compelling in its black and white imagery. And the Disney version, where the first time you could have a beast who wasn't a man in a cat suit. He really was a beast. He was an animal. He was on all fours. We'd never seen that before. You know, that's one of the most widely told fairy tales in the entire world. Every culture um, has a version of it. Because in every culture, someone's beautiful daughter goes out and marries some great hairy lout from outside, And then in the 18th century, it's kind of tamed and becomes something to reassure young women who are going to arranged marriages that even if he looks like a jerk, you'll learn to love him. There'll be something there. So that's a story that I think speaks to each generation. And the question is, can you find something as compelling as those two great examples 
to keep to keep it alive, whether it's the Phantom of the Opera or the Hunchback of Notre Dame or, you know, there are so many variations on that story. The challenge, I, I think, though, is when you have like Hitchcock's greatest films, how do you remake something like that that is so singular, such a gem? You you would have to go in a totally different direction. I mean, I know that there was the remake of Psycho on a shot-for-shot mm-hmm. basis, but um, I think certain certain films are just not really you, – you, you, how could you redo Vertigo, for example? Right, like Disturbia is a, a, a younger version of Rear Window, for example. Yes. Through, you know, and and that, there have been other versions right. of that yeah. Rear Window type story. Right. Yeah. I really like the fresh-inspired modern versions of Shakespeare. And I will admit I'm a total sucker for something like The Hamlet from 2000 with Ethan Hawke set in the modern day. Um, I like 10 Things I Hate About You because it's Taming of the Shrew in a high school. I love, and it was very divisive, I love Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. To stage the balcony scene in a swimming pool is really cool. Charles is raising his eyebrows at me. I wish you all could see Charles looking with disdain at my iconic. Okay. You have my sword. Up Thank you. you have my sword. Amy's got me. No, but I think it, you can do it in a traditional way like Zeffirelli did, but to take chances with that, it, it provides an opportunity to hear these words we know so well in a totally fresh way. But, you know, it's not, uh, to, oh, I was going to say, I was going to chime in with, with Christy, though, Forbidden Planet. Yeah. That's the Tempest in, in outer space, and that works beautifully. Yeah, Walter Pitchin, and yeah, terrific yeah. film. And, and, uh, so I'm agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, uh, we are talking about Emma earlier, and they're, of course, Clueless, which... Uh, you know, setting it in a totally setting it in Beverly Hills and doing that story. exactly. And I think when you do that, you really realize how universal that template of the story is. How good the bones of Emma are that you can just put it in Beverly Hills and it makes absolute perfect sense. Everybody completely gets it, and it stands alone as its own film. If you've never even heard of Emma, if you've never read Jane Austen, and I think a movie like Clueless came out and got people reinterested in Jane Austen again. But you don't have to have known the original to get all the references because I think that is something that a lot of remake films do is they're like, let me have that shot that you remember, you know, from the original so that you know that I've seen the original and you can trust me to be the director to bring it back to life. You know, something where they're showing their resume more than figuring out what's alive in that film. Although I will say I am on a on just a purely maybe trolling level kind of a fan of the Psycho remake just as yeah. an experiment <laughs> in what it is like to try to recapture something, almost how impossible it is to recapture something, which I think... I think Gus Vincent was trying some sort of strange prank on the audience that I enjoy. Yeah. You know? The daring of it. The ambition (laughs) of it. Um, I really liked The Invisible Man last week. That's a story we've seen a million times, and they made it completely relevant and feel totally new. Elizabeth Moss is amazing in it. So you can tell a story that's been told a million times. If you're doing it well, though, it will feel new and exciting. Well, and that, though, that, that was like a total departure, though, from the source material. Even though I know Wells was credited, that was so – I mean, and, and that, I think, is an example of where you take the, the general concept and then you just take it in a totally different social commentary sort of thing as that film um, did. Another one is The Three Musketeers. That's been done so many times. But the Richard Lester is so brilliant – and captures the dirt and noise and crud of the 17th century. And they even improve on Dumas in one scene when D'Artagnan has saved the queen's honor in the book. He's taken through all these stuffy corridors of the Louvre, and Anne of Austria's ineffably white hand appears behind a tapestry and slips him the diamond ring. And in Lester, it's in this enormous ceremony where he's made being made a musketeer in front of Louis, in front of you know everyone, and it's 
if Duma had thought of that touch, he would have used it. All right. Hey, thank you all. Enjoyed talking about uh, adaptations or remakes of films, uh, often from literary sources. You can share your comments on the Film Week page at kpecc.org. Have a terrific weekend. All kinds of good films our critics shared with us. You can go out and see. And hope you join us again next week. Film Week every Friday at 11, Saturday at noon, and... Film uh, and the Frame Weekend coming up at 2 o'clock right here on uh, Saturday afternoon on KPCC with host John Horn. We'll talk with you next weekend. <laughs>